I think of the Misfits as kind of a metal band too. They oh, are. Yeah. The no, Misfits they're they're are both. They're no. both. You know, it's like no way. Yeah. No way. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by Fire, the foundation for individual rights and expression. All right, welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. You might recall a couple of weeks ago, we did a podcast on music, music censorship, transgression in music with Nick Gillespie, the editor at large of Reason Magazine, and Bob Guccione, who founded Spin and has been involved in the music industry for decades now. And at the end of that podcast, we got talking about punk rock, and I admitted to not knowing hardly anything about it. And Nick Gillespie was kind enough to offer to come back on the show and educate me about punk rock and its importance to the cause of free expression, uh, both in music and in culture more generally. And Bob later told me he knows nothing about punk rock like me and would not be good for the conversation. So we're going to have to have Bob Gucciani back at a later date. But I do have the benefit of having Matt Harwood, Fire's new vice president of communications. He joined us last year, I believe, in September, who is a punk rock fan. I remember him telling me, you either had to take off work, Matt, or you were telling me later that night you wouldn't be around because you were going to a punk show. And I also have Jack Witten on Fire's comms team, who is a huge punk rock fan and is himself in a punk band. So I'm surrounded by by people who like punk rock and talk about punk rock. And I just have to kind of nod my head like I know what they're talking about, kind of like with Greg Lukianoff for president when he talks (laughs) about comic books. I know nothing about him, but he is a huge comic book fan and it hasn't stopped him from trying to talk with me about comic books for the past decade. So Nick Gillespie, welcome back on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Matt Harwood, welcome onto the show for the first time. Uh, glad to be here, Nico. Nick, I want to start with you. What got you into punk rock? Uh, I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot since you uh, had told me you were going to open with this. And I think in a lot of ways, it, there was a moment. Uh, so the Sex Pistols, the British band, which is you know super identified with punk music. In 1976, they were on a British TV show. That was a regional talk show with a guy named Bill Grundy, who was a famously kind of boozy morning show host. They're heroes, not the nice clean Rolling Stones. You see, they're as drunk as I am. They're clean by comparison. They're a group called the Sex Pistols. Um, and, uh, he was sneering at them and saying like, oh, you guys are supposed to be, you know, like punk rockers or your, you know, your, your outlaws, et cetera, say something outrageous. And, you know, Johnny Rotten and especially Steve Jones did more than participate in that. And, uh, you know, at, at one point, Steve Jones, the guitarist said like, you, uh, you fucking bastard. You know, you fucking rotter. And, um, it, in England, it created this moment where it was, uh, there's a famous headline in a British paper called the filth and the fury, even though it was a regional show, it just became the story of the day that these punks, these like sniveling little, you know, children of the greatest generation of the people who beat Hitler were just nightmares. 
And uh, there were reports of people kicking in their TV sets when they saw this. You know, it, it just like ignited something. And that story, even though it was in England, it, it made it over. And I, I read about it. I remember my brother who's older than me and, and I reading about it in either the Daily News or the New York Post. I was living in New Jersey. And we just laughed at the insanity of it, right? That, you know, first off, that these people would be on TV and then, then people would you know, get so outraged, they would like kick their TV sets in. And I think for me, I, I was born in 1963. So I was like 13 in, in 1976, which was also the bicentennial year. Uh, you know, and I was a Boy Scout. I marched in like a hometown bicentennial parade. So, uh, you know, but there was a broad sense that something weird and bad was going on in America, that, you know, things were not particularly great. And, um, you know, that's kind of when I became aware of punk music. The, uh, the, uh, the Sex Pistols were themselves actually inspired mostly by American bands, first and foremost, the Ramones. And a couple of other figures in New York. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it, for me, it was kind of that moment, and what spoke to me about it was the unadorned kind of anger of uh, the music and of the people, but also, and this often gets lost in kind of when people look back at it, it was the fun of it. Uh, the Ramones were a short, you know, staccato band that just played songs that, you know, typically would last two minutes. But they were very direct, very punchy, but also really, really funny. And they were kind of, uh, you know, referencing, uh, you know, a kind of Hogan's Heroes world or a world with movie monsters and then making fun of the subject matter and the treatment of love and things like that that you would normally find in a love song. So, you know, it's like, uh, you know, they instead of talking about love, they would talk about sniffing glue. Uh, they would talk about beating people up and things like that in a kind of almost girl group patois uh, that is very funny. And, you know, they were making fun not as much of the parents culture as much as the hippie culture that was immediately preceding them. So it was funny. It was angry. It was upbeat. It was short. It was to the point, and in many cases, it did speak to this kind of sense of torpor or uh, or despair. So, and Matt, what got you interested in punk rock? You know, I hate to confess this. I think it was Green Day actually got me into punk rock. That was going to be a question later in the show. It's like, is Green Day punk rock? I don't know if they are anymore. Oh, sure. No, but yeah, yeah, they they definitely come out of it. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, people don't want to admit that it's, they turn their know, nose but, up to it. Like the, yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, every, everybody gets that way, right. Where you, you were there for, I mean, and punk is terrible for this where it's like, Oh, I saw this band play in a men's room, you know, when they are, they only had two fans and, and, you know, the minute they become popular or other people hear about it, you know, then it's, it's no longer punk. I think that's bullshit, but and I think Green Day is on the receiving end of a lot of that. Well, I think it's bullshit, but there also is something about punk rockers playing sold-out stadium shows. You know what I mean? It's just yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It just For doesn't sure. compute. 
But for me, outside of that, then it became, I was a skater kid and I was the uncool skater kid in the sense that I rollerbladed. So that was like rollerblading and (laughs) rails rails and ramps and all those type of things. So the bikers hated us, you know, the skateboarders hated us, but uh, just watching skate videos, man, I just got plunged into it. It's exactly what Nick is saying. It's just like fast music. It's rebellious. It's individualistic for the most part. Um, So that's really what attracted me to punk rock, particularly the anti-authoritarian aspects of it. Where did the where did the name punk rock come from, Nick? You used when in re, in reflecting on that Bill Grundy story, you say you say he kind of calls them punks. You know, right. they're they're de, you know, they're degenerates or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, did that did that come as a result of folks like Bill Grundy calling these rockers yeah, that, or did it, it was already? That? Yeah, I think it was all it, it already predated that a bit. And I'm, I'm I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the you know the the earliest iterations of it. And you know, there's a, a great deal of you know historical excavation that goes into this. But there was a uh, there was a magazine, a zine, really called Punk in New York in the early '70s. And part of it is a punk was, uh, you know, a punk was somebody who was like a gay um, uh, consort in prison. It's somebody, you know, like you would punk somebody out, you would just use them sexually and things like that. And it, so in as a lot of terms of identification, you know, this happens, you know, the Quakers were called Quakers by their enemies, and then they kind of take it on. Or, you know, there's a certain version of this with African-Americans and gays and whatnot, like to, to take on the term queer. Punk was kind of like that. And it was, again, it was kind of playful and funny. And it came to signify instead of being, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra in the 50s would refer to people as little punks. You know, they're just like beneath contempt and weak and all of this kind of stuff. And punk, um, you know, the, I mean, it was the, the people behind Punk Magazine and then the scene really that was starting to congregate in New York in the uh you know in the early to mid 70s where it really became the kind of term to in a in a weird way also and this is something worth thinking about it it the the bands that played at a a, a place like CBGB's which was you know the kind of shrine of punk um it um they were not aesthetically that similar. Uh, you know, there's a lot of difference between, you know, the Talking Heads, the Ramones, Blondie, uh, Fear, uh, you know, the, uh, the Bad Brains. I mean, like, I mean, it's just like it, what mattered was that they were all kind of in the same place at the same time or acknowledged each other as this alternative to what was considered mainstream, dull, boring, overblown, overproduced, um, you know, kind of hippie uh, culture. And it, and it really is, you know, the, you know in, a, in a way, uh, punk was the second half of the baby boom rebelling against the first half of the baby boom. Um, and so that that's who they were first and foremost in dialogue with. And specifically in, in England uh, in 1976, uh, Eric Clapton, you know, Eric Clapton, it was like, you know, was was there was graffiti in England during the uh, 60s. You know, Clapton, Clapton is God. Right. He you know, he's like the pope of hippiedom, uh, the pope of the 60s, of the high 60s. And he gave a slurred, drunken speech at a uh, concert where he was promoting the candidacy of a guy named Enoch Powell, who was 
a racist, uh, you know, strange politician in England. And he was like, uh, you know, who was very nativist and Clapton, you know, slurredly said, uh, you know, that Enoch Powell is right. You know, that England should be for the English. Uh, David Bowie at the same time, another, you know, high, like late sixties, early seventies rock star, you know, giant selling out the entire planet, you know, in these stadium tours was speaking fondly of fascism and of, uh, you know, Hitler. And there was a a group that founded a, a group called rock against racism. And it was younger people who were identified with the punk music scene saying, you know, these are old, like fat. Uh, brain dead, drunken, boozy, extravagant, you know, uh, you know, cavalier, idiot, older brothers. And that's who we're fighting against. Nick, I'm, I want to clarify, and Matt, maybe you can help out here, what you mean by the punk rockers being aesthetically dissimilar, right? Because when I think of punk yeah. music, I think of the style being fairly similar. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't agree with that. You guys know music in a way that I do not. I only listen to it. But when you listen to like an early band that is, you know, part of the CBGB scene and part of the, um, um, you know, punk scene is television, which had Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell, uh, who ended up leaving the group. But if you listen to them, these are exquisitely um, uh, produced and polished songs with like unbelievably, uh, advanced playing They're long, they're, um, uh, lyrically opaque and poetic, you know, you have that on the one hand, and then you have something like early Ramones where the songs are, you know, a minute, a minute and a half long. There isn't even a solo. There may be two chords, and the the message is, you know, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. Beat on the brat, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh. When I say that, it's there's a lot of difference. Um, oh, you know, oh, okay, and, and, I, I see yeah. what you're saying. It, there's yeah. a lot of difference between the other music that was being made at the time. I thought you meant well, punk rock with, music Within the punk, yeah, within the punk movement, television was you know one of the founding bands of CBGBs. Uh, somebody like Patti Smith, even, who is raw um, and is maybe is considered pre-punk, I, I find all, you know the attempt to kind of create really sharp and meaningful divisions, eh. It's kind of hard, but like, you know, um, you know, they're, they're, they were very different styles. Like, and if you went to, uh, you know, CBGB's in 1978 or something like that, you might hear three bands that have little in common other than the fact that they are in CBGB's. Matt, do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, a large variety of punk. I mean, I can only, you know, speak around my age, which was the nineties and the aughts and things like that. But I mean, there was emo, which was kind of like your suburban kids whining over their girlfriends, which I loved when I was a kid. And I was, you know, acne scarred and all that type of stuff. That was incredible. There's screamo, which is kind of like a metal punk in a sense where it goes from like really, I would say, beautiful, beautiful singing to just cacophonous screaming. It's like the used. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, yeah, the used. I would say the used are more. Yeah. The used are screamo. I was thinking more like a band, which interestingly enough to talk about diversity and especially viewpoints is someone like under oath which is a christian band from florida that was a was a screamo band and then you have like 
the Buffalo hardcore scene, which are vegans and straight edge. Um, there's like Christian core. I mean, basically you can attach anything to core. There's Krishna core. There was a band that I loved as a kid called Shelter. It got me into Eastern philosophy. So it was funny, like all the things that I loved as a kid kind of came out of punk rock and the bands that I were listening to very much colored my politics, my ideologies, all those type of things. A lot of the reading that I did, I was tipped off by, by the punk rock musicians that I listened to. It's interesting because I, I see some of those bands, metalcore, coming out of metal more so than punk rock because I grew up a metalhead. I was into bands like Metallica and, and ACDC and a band named Ice Earth was one of my favorites, but also more death metal like bands like uh, Children of Bodom and In Flames and Soil Work. And I, and I see those later bands that you talk about, the Screamo bands, kind of coming out of that lineage more so than anything else. Yeah, there, there might be con- some convergence between the two genres. But when I think of punk rock, and again, not familiar with the genre, or maybe I'm more familiar than, with it than I know, I think back to that Tom Morello story Matt from the interview that Fire sponsored with him, where he talks about seeing Joe Strummer um, in concert, and Joe Strummer had a Music Man amp on top of like a small Music Man amp on top of a chair, and that was his amplifier at the concert. And Tom Morello, who was just a young kid at the time, had a Music Man amp on top of a chair in his basement. That's what he's practiced, and that's what inspired him to say, like, "Oh, I can do this too," because that guy I just saw on stage last night has the same setup as I do. And that, so when Nick talks about kind of a not overproduced sound, kind of a grungier sound, sort of like who the fuck cares whether I'm playing out of a Marshall amplifier sound, that's what I think of as punk rock. Like I've got a ceiling fan and an amp and a microphone and a guitar, and that's all I need sort of approach, which do do it yourself ethic a hundred percent. Yeah. That I think is a big part of punk, uh, in a, in a broad way. And, you know, and it, and it changes and evolves over time, but the DIY nature of things where the bands overall that, you know, defined punk, I think in the seventies, you know, did not have music. Most of them did not have any kind of uh, musical training or elite musical training. Uh, they didn't have record labels. They didn't have, you know, uh, practice spaces and things like that. And they, they absolutely pioneered a, a strong DIY ethic of like, we don't know what to do, but we're going to create a world. We're going to create a music. We're going to create a scene. We're going to create labels. Uh, we're going to release this and then kind of, and then they move into a kind of more conventional uh, space. So I think rather than the aesthetics, um, I guess uh, getting hung up too much on the aesthetics of, you know, does the clash sound like the talking heads? Do they sound like the cramps or something? Yeah, kind of, but not really, I think. Um, and then, you know, it's more that they have a similar ethos, which is protesting on some level, being very alternative uh, and not necessarily in a sniffy or showy way, but it's like they are doing their own thing um, and they're doing it in relation to what came before them. I, I, I see punk, and I, th- I think a lot of culture is like this. Uh, you know, it's kind of a dialectical um, experiment uh, or, or experience. And just as rock music was in uh, dialogue with folk music and the kind of uh, Sinatra, Bing Crosby crooner stuff in the early 60s, you know, punk then was in a, a dialogue and a dialectic with 
you know, what, you know, groups like ELP, groups like Yes, groups like Genesis, Progressive Rock, which to their mind had generally become bloated and stupid and talking about, you know, uh, uh, elves and, uh, you know, and uh, Norse mythology or something in a, in a silly way, right? They come at it in a much more stripped down, um, you know, kind of uh, stark way. What is the first, and I know this can get difficult, but what is the first punk band? You know, metal, it's often pegged to Black Sabbath, right? Correctly or incorrectly. Um, you know, rock and roll, you taught, you, you hearken back to folks like Elvis Presley. And I know there are many people who take issue with that. So, you know, we could get hung up on this conversation. But when you think of kind of the paradigmatic punk band that kind of started it all, or at least brought it into popular culture, who do you guys think of? I mean, I think of the Ramones uh, because, you know, they started playing together, I think, in like 1975. And they, you know, and then they, uh, their first album came out in 1976. And it really, it did not sell well in a lot of ways. It was kind of like the Velvet Underground about almost 10 years before where they released an album that was dr- drastically out of step with the times. And it didn't sell well, but it really affected uh, the people who heard it, like, you know, just like people said this about, I think it was Brian Eno said this about the Velvet Underground that, you know, the record didn't sell very well, but everybody who bought it started their own band. Something like that happened with the Ramones, who then influenced the guy who helped create the Sex Pistols. And then, you know, when the Sex Pistols started touring England, something similar happened as well. So, you know, again, I, I don't, I'm, I, I don't get too hung up on, you know, okay, what is the very first instance of this or that? But there's a bunch of bands and acts, mostly in New York City, uh, in the early '70s. There are proto groups. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about someone like Patti Smith or the Stooges, um, who are kicking around. And you, you, there, you can hear kind of the rawness and the, um, you know, and the, uh, you know, the lack of kind of sophistication on some level is very important. Well, it's interesting is too, what you're saying, Nick, because I think I could even heard a song from Little Richard from the 50s that I was like, that is a punk song. Like it was just fast and driving and it was in the three minutes. And then you also have like MC5 would kick out the jams, which is just ferocious punk energy before I think anyone would have called anything punk. But I tend to agree with you. I think if you're going to settle on something, it's probably going to be the Ramones. So you guys are talking about how punk rock was a response to the culture of the day or the res- culture that came before it. I don't think of punk rock as being mainstream culture, but you guys might disagree. Um, I, I think of it more as kind of a response to, to kind of prevailing culture. Hot Topics made a lot of money off of it. Yeah. Well, you know what, what is interesting about it, and there's a fantastic book called Babylon's Burning by Clinton Halen, who's a a British uh, pop music writer, a rock writer. And that takes punk from its early beginnings, both in the U S and in, uh, and in England, and then takes it through uh, Nirvana and, and kind of green day. And I think it's worth thinking about that punk in its early heyday, which is, you know, maybe 75, 76, to uh you know 77 maybe 79 at the latest it didn't really especially in the u.s it didn't sell a lot of records 
but then it it slowly influenced more and more things. So you get to a point like Nirvana and Green Day, which clearly are indebted to punk and are and are riffing off of that many of its sensibilities and were like the biggest bands in the world. You know, they were as big or bigger than a group like U2 or Bruce Springsteen or REM ever, you know, ever managed to be. Nick, to your point, I mean, Kurt Cobain would have called himself uh, that Nirvana was a punk rock band. Yeah. There was just the overlay with grunge. How much do you need to understand New York City in the 70s to understand punk rock? Uh, I think it helps because, and then it's also interesting to think about San Francisco and LA, which were the other two big hotbeds of this. Uh, and actually, let me take that back. Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland and Akron, where bands like the Pretenders and Devo came out of and the Dead Boys and Rocket from the Crypt, uh, and Per Ubu. Um, there's, uh, you know, and, and again, take a step back a little bit and Detroit or, you know, the industrial Midwest. There's definitely, you know, part of the backdrop of punk on the East Coast and the and industrial Midwest was economic collapse, right? Or, or not even like a rusting out where it was just that what, you know, the people who were making this music, their parents had moved to these places because they were vibrant and dynamic. And by the time these people were coming of age in the 70s, that was all like it, it was either definitely gone or you could just see it sliding away. So I think that that sense of economic malaise, but also a kind of cultural malaise, it was post 60s. The 60s ended in a fury of, uh, of uh, cataclysmic events, uh, you know, failures and, you know, finally an end to Vietnam, but, you know, a, a loss, uh, the decline of economic opportunity. Um, you know, in New York City in the 1970s from 70 to 80, the, the city lost about a million people, uh, you know, something like 10% of its population. It was kind of on its heels. Um, and that's certainly true of Northeastern Ohio and, and Detroit. When you go to the West Coast, there was something, you know, in San Francisco in the 70s, and there's a great book called Season of the Witch by David Talbot about the kind of broad weirdness of San Francisco. But, you know, you had everything from, you know, Black Panthers killing people to, uh, you know, the mayor and Harvey Milk being shot to get death by another, you know, city supervisor. Jim Jones of the uh, People's Temple was there until he vacated. The, you know, uh, serial killers were all over the place. And in LA, both in LA proper, as well as in Orange County, which was a big kind of uh, crucible of this stuff, there was a sense of decay and of being left out. If, uh, you know, whether you were white or if you were an emerging ethnic group, it was just like, yeah, the American dream doesn't exist here. It's really kind of morphed into something creepy and scary and just uninteresting. Nick, in the beginning for you, just the early early groups, because I just didn't follow them as much. What were their politics? Were they mostly socialist? Because no, I remember growing up, yeah. I, you know, the politics of all the punk bands were socialists. Yeah, that I think comes a little bit later. And, you know, my colleague at Reason, Brian Doherty, wrote a great piece for us in 2000 or 2001 called The Strange Politics of Millionaire Rock Stars, which kind of speaks to this. And Rage Against the Machine are like front and center there because Rage Against the Machine clearly, openly and truly, you know, indebted to punk 
But then they had a very ridiculous kind of, you know, the worst kind of dumb socialist policies about everything. In the early days, I would say punk was kind of, I I don't want to say it was an anarchistic because it wasn't a political program. Part of it was in opting out of all of that kind of stuff. And people, you know, the Ramones famously, you know, Johnny Ramone hated communism. Uh, They hated communism. Tommy Ramon, the guy who was the drummer and the producer, his parents were Hungarian refugees. They were not, you know, they were anti-communist. I mean, in, in a in a profound way, John Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols was always railing against communists, uh, you know. And um, so, I think the politics of punk, especially in the early days, was very heterodox. It was definitely anti-authority. Uh, it was anti-fascist. It was anti-communist. It was anti corporate. Um, it was anti kind of mom and dad, but it was especially anti big brother and big sister. Uh, meaning, you know, like the Eric Clapton's of the world were, you know, just, uh, you know, unendurable. Uh, what happened and the clash in a group called gang of four, which is phenomenal in England, really kind of, um, spearheaded a narrowing of the political rhetoric of punk to something that was much more kind of doctrinaire, uh, you know, late seventies, early eighties, kind of socialist friendly towards either, if not the Soviets, then to the Sandinistas or to Castro or to, you know, these other emanations of, of what we all recognized, uh, at the time, but then the world recognized by, you know, by 1990 was a failed ideology. When you're dealing with counterculture movements, including music, uh, like punk rock, you often find examples of censorship. And Nick, when I asked you and Bob Gucciani on the last podcast, did punk rock ever face censorship? You guys both kind of chuckled at me, but I truly just don't know much of the history. Matt was telling me as we were coming up with our free speech and other dirty words video series in which we interviewed Tom Morello and Melissa Etheridge, we were trying to come up with artists who have had something to say historically uh, about censorship and Matt brought up Danzig and the song Mother uh, which I guess is about the PMRC and censorship Can you keep them in the dark for a while? Can you have them away? So I, I'd love to hear some of the stories uh, Nick, your your conversation or your story about Bill Grundy I think kind of speaks to some of this yeah. as well Well of course they were on TV when they said it you know and it led but England also the UK had weird things where um uh you know the Sex Pistols had a massive hit they sold a lot of records in England you know God Save the Queen which was released around the jubilee of of Queen Elizabeth II And it made fun of her, you know, God save the queen, she ain't no human being. Uh, And when they would move up the charts, like that song title would be blacked out because England has more open censorship or had more open censorship. And so the Sex Pistols were topping the charts in England, but it would either be redacted or a blank slot at the top of the chart. So in that sense, it's censorship. There was another kind of uh, you know, it's not censorship per se, but the, the Sex Pistols went through at least two record deals before, uh, and they kept getting dropped by their labels because they were like, no, this is too hot to handle. And then finally Virgin 
uh, records, uh, Richard Branson's outfit, which ironically, the first album that Virgin Records, uh, Richard Branson started out selling used records, um, but the first um, new uh, you know, production that they released was uh, Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. I mean, it's a very prog rocky, and Mike Oldfield, who made the label, it's very prog rocky, you know, long kind of classical symphonic type stuff. Um, but Branson was the one who picked up the uh, Sex Pistols uh, record and released Nevermind the Bollocks, which is, you know, it stands as, you know, one of the great debut albums of all time. And so it got played, but not as much on the radio as you might think in England. I think in the U.S., I was thinking about this because another great early kind of punk group uh, that was big in CBGB was, was uh, Wendy O. Williams and the Plasmatics. And they would do things like cut, you know, cut their instruments in half using a chainsaw. She would wear, you know, a bikini made out of whipped cream that would start to dissipate as she was performing. Um, she was arrested for uh, public indecency in, in Milwaukee and things like that. A lot of these records just didn't get airtime in the U.S. And I don't think it wasn't censorship per se, but it was clearly, um, you know, it was it was dis, uh, discouraged by officials as well as corporate entities. And one thing to remember, uh, which is hard to recover in this moment of, you know, just a cornucopia where you can hear everything ever done all the time, you know, there weren't that many outlets for, you know, public outlets, whether you're talking about broadcast TV, there were three channels and, you know, a bunch of UHF channels and even radio stations, you know, there were many fewer radio stations and most of them did not play this kind of music. Yeah. Well, I think censorship is a very specific kind of thing, but I think of punk rock as pushing the boundaries of what can be said in polite society. And that, of course, has free speech implications. Here at FIRE, we talk about a culture of free speech in where people have the freedom to be who they are and speak their minds and have the artistic freedom to kind of experiment with new modes of, of, of expressing themselves. So it doesn't need to be censorship per se, where you have the government coming in and, and arresting you on on stage for <laughs> having a whipped cream bikini or whatever. Uh, but it, but it can be kind of an, a stultifying culture of orthodoxy or conformity, the sort of conformity that in fact, John Stuart Mill condemns in his, his famous treatise from the 19th century on Liberty, um, which was a revolt in that sense against Victorian England. But in this case, it sounds like you're saying it's not a, a revolt against sort of conformity unless you think of hippie culture as a sort of conformity. Yeah, which I guess which you, they, you might they definitely did. And you know, when you think about it in terms of the recording industry again, which has gone through, you know, massive shifts, uh, you know, just in the 21st century, but it really started exploding or imploding in the 90s. And you know, we'll come back to Rage Against the Machine in a minute, but a lot of the punk bands were either signed by smaller labels. So like Sire Records, which was uh, run by uh, Seymour Stein, who died recently. And he released a lot of the early punk bands because he liked it, but it was a, it was a smaller label. In England, uh, labels like Stiff Records and Rough Trade released a lot of stuff, uh, you know, because the major labels wouldn't do it. Virgin at the time was not a major label. Uh, in the US, uh, you know, a group like the Dead Kennedys, 
created alternative tentacles. Uh, the uh, Greg Ginn, who was the founder of Black Flag, started his own record company, another record company, SST Records, another in California, a Slash Records release groups like The Germs, because you couldn't, there was no way Warner Brothers, there was no way Columbia, there was no way RCA, they weren't going to touch these bands. And in this sense, I think one of the great, you know, kind of relatively underappreciated aspects of punk is, you know, by creating all of these different record labels that were oftentimes lo-fi and shaky and short-lived, but it helped start this kind of decentralization of cultural production that we are living in now. Some people bemoan it, but it's just part of what they were rebelling against was the kind of centralization of cultural, uh, of cultural production. Um, and, and it had gotten to such an insane degree, you know, famously in the sixties, Columbia records, which took a while to, you know, embrace rock because rock was seen as a fad in the late fifties through the early sixties. But by the end of the sixties, they were gigantic and they would put ads in Ramparts magazine, which was like a far left magazine that is phenomenal. Find it online. If you can, the, the back issues are great. Um, but they Columbia Records would put uh, ads in Ramparts Magazine, which was a hardcore left-wing progressive anti-war magazine that did some great journalism. Uh, Columbia Records would say, you know, the man can't bust our music. And it would be a promotion for Columbia Records. And they were the man. You know, but this is how the 60s counterculture had gotten to a point where they were kind of dominating everything, but they were still pretending to be dispossessed and marginal. And that's, you know, the real people who were marginalized and disgusted by that in the six, uh, in the seventies were the punks. And they were like, ah, you know, fuck you. And to their credit, instead of just shutting up or going home, they started to produce their own outlets for this kind of stuff, including creating their own clubs, uh, as well as record labels and magazines and things like that. Yeah. Did the zine culture come out of punk rock? I don't know if it came out of it, but it definitely enabled it. And when you look again, punk magazine, uh, and there's a fantastic oral history of punk called Please Kill Me um, uh, by Legs McNeil and, um, and a co-author. And it's, you know, like recapturing how square American culture was or, or, or global culture was is worth doing because we, we face different challenges now. You know, people will be like, oh, there's too much diversity and offerings or there's too much to read, et cetera. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, it was the inverse, right? Or it was, the, it was different. And to, to understand that and to understand the anger and the pent up frustration that that created and, and that that also, it was in, cult, in the cultural sphere, but also in the economic sphere. Um, you know, it, this is a, kind of a jump, but, you know, uh, corporations like Apple and even Microsoft were, you know, seeing themselves in dialogue with IBM or AT&T or older um, computer companies. And they were like, fuck it, we're not going to be like that. We're going to be more distributed. We're going to be more open. We're going to, we, we're not going to make people wear the same clothes. White collar workers wear uniforms just as much as garbage men or assembly line workers. I, and this was, this was, you know, the seventies was a moment where there was a lot of decay, but out of that came this push to disperse and decentralize economic and cultural production, uh, which I, th you know, I think is very liberating and it's a way of routing around 
maybe not censorship per se, but that kind of stultifying oppression that says like, you're a little bit alternative, you're a little bit off, so we're not going to give you a platform. Well, I was going to say, that's also what made punk rock so cool for me was I had to go to an independent record store to buy anything that I wanted. There was like the discovery of going through the CD racks and finding, you know, an album cover that just spoke to you and you buy it. Most of the time it sucked, but sometimes you find that one album that just speaks to you and it's like, you know, it, uh, the thing I would just play and wear out forever. But also to like Nick's point too, in the 90s, like there's certain, certain subgenres of punk, like hardcore and stuff that gets incredibly puritanical, right? You get the straight edge movement and vegan movements in the, in the, in the culture and they are violent. I mean, you go to shows, you're wearing leather sneakers or something, you're getting decked. Like it's, it's like that. You're, you're drinking they'll beat the shit out of you. Like, so it can take some pretty dark turns. It isn't, so in the sense of it's like, it's against a predominant culture almost always, but it can take these really weird turns if that dominant culture is say boozy, you know, where they think kids are getting drunk too much. It's like, no, we we stand against this. We're straight edge, you know, F you, don't do this around us or we'll kick the shit out of you. Yeah, it's, it's funny because you think of the counterculture being kids who, drink and do a lot of drugs right and here the counterculture <laughs> it's almost like it's almost like that is the at its pinnacle of culture in the 90s and now you're having the counter revolution to that whereas you had the straight edge movement which i remember in the early 2000s when i was a band in a band like st the straight edge movement was something i remember it had a significant following i don't know if it, i don't hear about it as much as i used to but at the in the same vein i'm also just not as attached to the music scene i think at, it was trying to figure out nico by the time you were playing i felt like it was at its like it kind of went through waves i think there was the 80 wave with like minor threat and then it comes back with bands like snapcase and things like that in the 90s and it also you know it comes and goes partly you know when you have like a bunch of people in music you know uh die i mean something you know like kurt cobain was both you know the beautiful spokesman you know kind of like the the final evolution of jim morrison or something you know 10 or 15 years later but also you know, clearly uh, he's a pretty good argument uh, against doing drugs, you know? So uh, these different types of subcultures all are, you know, constantly in ebb and flow based on who's big and who's not. Because again, a lot of it is how do you differentiate yourself, um, you know, against your, your either your contemporaries or your immediate predecessors. What did metalheads think of punk rock, right? They seem to have similar ethos in a certain vein. Yep. They can be counterculture. Uh, they can sometimes dress similarly, though I think of, of metalheads, at least in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, of having long hair. I don't often think of punk rockers that way. Did they get along? I, you know, I think it varied, but you, you look at groups, you mentioned Glenn Danzig uh, and, you know, the Misfits played a lot at CBGB's and they were definitely part of that because of the sound and also the subject matter, you know, a lot of, the, you know, it's, it's also interesting to think about a lot of these older people as kind of, you know, they are kids who were raised by TV. So that means a lot of watching, you know, World War II movies that were rebroadcast and uh, monster movies on TV. So there's a lot of that kind of theme. Uh, there was a band uh, that was great, and they ended up having record label problems, which really prevented them from becoming as big as early as they should have been, 
the Cramps, uh, who, uh, uh, you know, kind of formed in, in California and partly in Ohio, uh, and, you know, and then like kind of hit it big in, in New York in the late 70s. And they did what was called Shockabilly. So it was kind of a mix of rockabilly music and kind of monster movies, and, you know, and um, they you would get they they could get along, you know, and people like Ozzy Osbourne on a certain level was definitely one of the godfathers of punk on some level. But then there's also, you know, the, uh, you know, the Blizzard of Oz, you know, where he's a fat, drunk arena rocker. That's kind of risible. But like, you know, nobody is I don't think anybody is going to dispute you know, the riffs of uh, Black Sabbath as being important. There's also, you know, somebody like Motorhead is a fantastic kind of, you know, bridge where, uh, you know, Dave Grohl, who was in Nirvana, and Nirvana is a band that brought Pat Smear, who was the guitarist for the Germs, a really great but super short-lived super punk band out of, uh, out of L.A. Uh, you know, like Dave Grohl will never miss an opportunity to play or, or to have played with Lemmy, and he gave a uh, eulogy that is beautiful at Lemmy's uh, uh, funeral. An hour later, I'm downstairs in the backstage, and I hear fucking Motorhead blaring out of the dressing room, and I get so excited, like, finally, someone else in the band's fucking listening to Motorhead. And I open up the door, and there's Lemmy by himself listening to Motorhead <laughs> with a cigarette and a Jack and Coke in my dressing room. Which you can find online. So there's a lot of interplay and, and um, you know, cross-hybridization. I mean, one of my favorite songs of all time is the Ace of Spades. I, I'd argue that's a punk song. That's not a metal song to me. I'm a shade green. The only gun I need is the Ace of Spades. The Ace of Spades. Oh, that's funny. I think of that as a metal song. Yeah. I also think of, of the Misfits. I think of the Misfits as kind of a metal band too. They are. Yeah. Yeah. So no, the they're they're are both. They're no. both. You know, it's like no way. Yeah. No way. But again, you know, the other thing that is interesting is, and this is something that punk did, um, you know, and certainly metal does. Although I I would tip it more to punk is the costuming and the kind of creation of identity. And again, in this, they're not being original. I mean, David Bowie did this, and and people before him, but it's playful, you know, and it's like. I get the sense that the misfits take themselves less seriously than say like Queensryche. And I mean, my, all of my music, uh, you know, illusions are dated, but like where the misfits, you know, or Guar, like they're having fun with it in a way that maybe Queensryche or Slipknot is kind of taking themselves a little seriously. Yeah. I think just as humans, we, we want to be able to draw bright lines between things and you just can't with music. Right. Although I will say that Nirvana was not metal. Nirvana did its damn best to kill metal, in my opinion. Um, at least '80s metal, as we knew it. But did you like the hair metal, Nico? Yeah, I you know I liked the hair metal. I, I liked it more than I, I liked Nirvana, for example. Really? Um, but you know, it was after Nirvana came and became popular, and bands like Green Day that. Uh, the metal genre started to change. Metallica cut its hair, right? You got albums like Load and Reload, which were divergent from uh, the Black Album or Injustice for All. Although I do think uh, I've rediscovered those albums and they have some deep tracks that I think are pretty, are some of Metallica's best works. But in any case, at least when I was growing up in the 90s and aughts, 
you know, we looked at those as sellout albums, right? Had and, the, Gads, the black album, right? The Gadsden flag on it too. Yeah, and then you and then you also had uh, new metal, right? That came out and eliminated guitar solos. So it was like we we look at the early '90s and the rise of bands like Nirvana as kind of a, a important point of delineation where things started to change with metal, and and a lot of it was blamed on punk rock, quite frankly, or at least the popularized punk rock that came out of bands like, for example, Nirvana and Green Day. I want to ask why advocates for our artistic freedom or free expression or free speech should care about punk rock. I'm not sure we've necessarily made the case here for it, and I'm not necessarily sure that a case can be made for it. I think the best case for it, at least as, as laid out here, is it pushed the boundaries of what was allowed to be expressed uh, within polite society. Um, and now we've kind of reached a day and age, although I was recently talking to some people who are in the music industry who say, yeah, censorship of music might not happen in the way it used to, but there's a lot of pre-censorship going on right now, a lot of music that doesn't get made in the same way there are books now that just aren't getting published or films that aren't getting released. Uh, they say that you see that in the music industry too. So maybe you need a kind of revitalization of the D. IY ethos that punk rock had, but there are channels now to, to release your own music. You're thinking of um, SoundCloud, for example, you see a lot of, of kind of edgy rap music being released there. Um, maybe the same thing happens with punk rock, and maybe artists still need those kind of bigger channels in order to release their stuff. And you have a lot of artists who are willing to self censor so they can get to those channels. I don't know, but I want to know what you guys think of why free speech advocates should care about punk rock, if at all. I mean, for me, I think it's just individualistic, right? It's it's ultimate form of self-expression. Um, there's not a lot of barriers to entry to it. I mean, one of the things that always I loved about particularly punk rock was the physical element of it. You could go to a show and you would mosh and you would get picked up and thrown on stage. There'd be like wrestling for the mic. So no one, like what Nick is saying, no one took themselves seriously. And what I loved the most was the artists never thought they were better than their audience, generally speaking, right? It was the idea that you could share the stage with them. And you don't know the kid that you handed the microphone to might be the next punk rock lead singer that you're going to go to the show and see. So that's what I loved. And, and one of the greatest things too was Philadelphia, when I was growing up, had such a good scene. So we would go to like the Trocadero, which I would say was Philadelphia CBGB's. Nick, to a certain extent, which was in an old burlesque building. Off no, of no, I, I, I lived in uh, Philly in the late 80s, so I'm familiar with what you're talking about. Philadelphia kind of has the ethos of a punk rock city. I don't know if when I think of it. So I always said this is something, well, I was just talking to someone about this. So there'd be a band, and I mentioned them already, like really obscure band, Snapcase, Buffalo Hardcore Band. And I had to worry about Snapcase selling out at the Trocadero. But know that I could go then two days later to New York City and go to whatever venue they're playing and buy a ticket right there. And I'd be standing there with like 20 people. So every single time like a great punk rock band came to well, what, I, what I would consider a great punk rock band came to Philadelphia, they were always talking about Philadelphia, how much we love you. You guys really get us. I, you know, to go to that question of, uh, you know, why does it matter? Why, if you care about free expression, 
One of the things that has really changed, and I appreciate what you guys are doing at FIRE to, you know, push back against this, but, you know, Nico, you emphasize the culture of free speech or free expression, um, you know, is as important as any kind of legal rules and things like that. And, you know, we have, we have a very good Supreme Court, which just recently ruled in favor of Section 230, uh, you know, of keeping the internet a little bit more free or saying, okay, that, you know, you... Uh, parents or or people can't blame YouTube or Twitter or something, you know, for radicalizing their kids. Like that, you know, that's important. And that the 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 legal bulwarks uh, that the Supreme Court and other courts have been laying down for the past, you know, really past seventy years is comforting. But we need this culture of free speech. And I think part of what uh, Punk did and continues to do, because I think it's more of an attitude than an aesthetic, um, hmm. is it it is constantly creating new outlets for new types of ideas or for oftentimes unspeakable ideas sometimes funny sometimes not but by doing that it is it's showing what is possible sometimes you look at it and you're like wow i really don't want to do that but it's good once you have that thing in your mind you can say okay uh, that's one point on a compass and i'm going to steer clear of that but i'm going to go somewhere else and you know, to Matt's point, the creation of new venues, the creation of new labels, the creation of new outlets for stuff is really, really important because the culture, you know, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like mutations, you know, all, almost all mutations in nature are deadly. But, you know, every once in a while, there's something that leads to a breakthrough. And I think that's true of culture. I think that's true of society. I think that's true of, you know, economics and whatnot. And punk is that kind of thing where it's, it's, it's you know, endless mutation. It's creative destruction within uh, the cultural arena. And, you know, that's what's important about it um, is that it didn't come up through the channels that we all expect, you know, things to come up to. It's not, you know, by the time punk gets to the New York Times or it gets to Columbia Records, which became Sony Records, which is where Rage Against the Machine you know, uh, sold it, sold to, um, <laughs> it's good, you know, because rage against the machine is like a, a, you know, they were a phenomenal band. They captured the moment. I, you know, part of this Brian Doherty story that's so good is that he went on a couple of message boards where there were people on there who like had finally gotten the lyrics and they were like, I can't believe that rage against the machine is like such a socialist band. Is so communistic because that's a you know a system that punishes individuals and and free speech and things like that um you know so it's like you can have a band like rage against the machine preaching communism on sony records uh you know being anti-capitalist and it's kind of great and it's kind of a performative contradiction but what's important is all of the stuff that led up to them becoming so big and so popular on a mainstream label. And it, it, I don't think the mainstream is bad, but you want the mainstream and then you want all of these little tributaries that are, you know, that are moving away from it that might redirect it in some way. And I think at its peak and at its core, that's what kind of the punk movement, which also was not simply limited to music. There was a, a version of punk literature, of punk movie making, of punk businesses. Um, you know, and, and uh, Matt, uh, you know, uh, I don't, is Zipperhead still uh, alive and well on South Street or whatever, but it was an early punk shop 
there was, you know, manic panic in, in New York and other places where just people were like, I'm going to start my own business selling the weird shit that I like and my friends like to wear to weird concerts. Um, and, you know, there's no hot topic without that. And then from hot topic, there's no section in, you know, Macy's or whatever. Like it's, you know, it's, you, you got to be constantly testing the boundaries of what is possible and what is visible if we are going to, you know, continue to thrive and know where we are and maybe where we want to be heading. It's, it's also, a, it's also a good way to, to raise anti-authorian children. So my kids are at a steady diet of punk rock. So, you know, we'll get in the car and we're heading off to a wrestling match and they'll be like, I should, probably shouldn't be admitting this, but they'll be like, Dad, we'll put on Fuck, Fuck Authority by Pennywise in the car. We're and they yeah. love the misfits. They sing all the lyrics. It, it brings me endless joy. Last question here. This is as much a, a thought as a question. Might be a compound question. Has punk rock won? When I think of punk rock, I, I almost use it as a synonym for cool. It's an in, a synonym for the ability of people to express their individuality. Matt and I often talk about, as you know, in our roles as marketers here at Fire, of making free speech punk rock, making it cool again, right? Like making people understand that the ability to be who you are and to speak your mind gets to the core of what freedom is, uh, and that freedom is cool. I, uh, I, you know, I would say, I don't know that it's one or that it's cool, but I do think, and this is where I've been talking a lot about this lately for a variety of reasons and in a variety of topics. Like, I think we're using the wrong frame to kind of analyze a lot of what's going on in contemporary society. And, you know, and we need to, like, we need to push back against kind of woke activism that is really specifically and explicitly trying to narrow the range of uh, respectable thought and speech and inquiry. But on another level, I think you're basically right, Nico, that that punk rock and all of that, what it represents, has won a profound victory of it is just so much more acceptable to be more individualistic now and to pick and choose from the past what you think is important and that speaks to who you are and how you want to express yourself. Uh, you know, my uh, younger son co graduated college uh, this past week and I'm in, I'm talking to him from LA. He went to Chapman University. And like when you look at not just the people on the stage who are getting college degrees that are, you know, more varied than ever, certainly more varied than in 1976 but the people in the audience and the way they're dressing. And a lot of times this gets bemoaned as, you know, the end of standards because we all didn't go to this graduation wearing tuxedos or riding our polo ponies there or something. But in fact, it, you know, it's kind of great. Like when you think about it, you know, you can work from home, you can wear what you want to wear, you can eat what you want to eat, you can sleep with who you want to sleep with consensually, you can marry them. You know, it's, you know, the world is so profoundly better and more individualized and mass personalized than before. And I think that's one of the real legacies of the punk rock moment, you know, and it's a historical moment, but then it's this kind of ethos. And I'll just maybe end with this story, which I'm sure is partly untrue, but it's a great story that Johnny Rotten would always tell, you know, that he got flagged uh, by Malcolm McLaren, uh, the guy who was the impresario of, of the Sex Pistols, 
and was, uh, you know, just a kind of trickster figure in uh, 70s and 80s England. Uh, but Rotten was wearing a Pink Floyd T-shirt and Pink Floyd was huge. And Pink Floyd, you know, they're like, you know, they were a sanctified band. I mean, you know, you're, you know, the people who fought World War II weren't like, oh, I love Pink Floyd. But everybody else was Pink Floyd is great. Pink Floyd, you cannot diminish them. And Rotten had written, I hate over the T-shirt. So he had taken a mass produced T-shirt and personalized it in a way that expressed him. And that is kind of what punk rock has helped usher in. The ability of us to kind of tailor mass production to what we want, you know, to more like what we want to say, but also then to create our own individualized version of commerce, of culture, of politics, of love, whatever. And I think that has triumphed and it's a much better world. And that's also another reason to keep the flame you know, alive, the, the flame of punk alive. And it, it doesn't mean, oh, you got to listen to this variant track, this alternate track. It doesn't mean be boring about it. It means like, yeah, let's create a world or let's keep creating a world where more individuals can do what they want. Matt, do you have any last thoughts on that? How can I follow that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I'll just say, I think punk is a mindset Right now, it's really weird. I don't like if you if you ask me to name like a really great punk band that just came out, I probably can't do it right now. So I don't know if punk's dead, but it's always waiting in the wings to like rear its ugly, individualistic, anti-authoritarian head when we need it. Well, a punk as a mindset can be alive, while as a genre can be yeah. totally waning. Dead. Yeah, and yeah, totally dead or just just waning in popularity. Right? I can't think of a punk band or at least a one that has the cultural import that maybe the Sex Pistols or the Ramones or the Dead Kennedys have. I can't, I can't think of one. But then again, I'm not, you know, what did, what did uh, Mario Savio say? Never trust anyone over 30, maybe because they just don't know what's going on with music anymore. I definitely fall into that camp. But, um, but I appreciate you both coming on the show and, and educating me and our listeners uh, about punk rock and, and why people who care about individuality and freedom and free speech should understand the genre more and uh, hope to do something like this again in the very near future. Great. Thanks, Nico. Thank you so much. That was Nick Gillespie, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and Matt Harwood, vice president of communications here at FIRE. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleagues Ella Ross and Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by subscribing to our YouTube channel, where this video will be housed. Uh, you can also find the podcast, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And please leave us a review wherever you get podcasts and send us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. Again, that is so to speak at the fire.org. We love hearing from you. And until next time, we thank you all again for listening. <laughs>